Hello, everyone. This is Chris Miller, your co-host of your absolute favorite podcast of all time, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, today, we just want to ask you, if you're enjoying it, to subscribe to our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get exclusive content, and you can help out Rob and Chris do all the things you love so well. Remember to hold fast and enjoy the show. Holy shit, we're back. I know, right? Oh, it's been a long time, guys. It was spring break, baby. Panama City Beach. We are getting ill-advised tattoos above the cracks of our asses. <laughs> I was getting frostbite in Pittsburgh. Quite frankly, Chris, I love that teddy bear that you got. In a dolphin, because it means so much. It's not just because I love dolphins. And it looks great on my ankle. Yeah, Kyle's here, too. Yay! Our good friend Kyle Graper, he's joining us today. Welcome back, Kyle. Welcome Thank back, you. Kyle. Thank um, you. I'm, I'm glad you're here. Of course, after our two-parter about... Uh, Gregor McGregor, um, I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm worried you're becoming a little attached. Um, I, I, I know you enjoy it. I, I just wish you didn't have a thunderous erection right now. That's that's. Who could blame this it? This is the only I mean, time you let me out of the basement. <laughs> it's a little exciting. And we can put you right back in. <laughs> All right. Of course, well, now that we're back, welcome back to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. And, of course, we are here with Kyle Graper. Woo. So, yeah, thanks everybody for being patient during our absence. We really appreciate it. We uh, you know, ran into some scheduling snafus, and of course we had a little vacation, and trying to organize with three people, and we had the start of baseball season. Baseball's back. Baseball is back, Ooh, baby. It was a big day today, four-game sweep of the Reds. Buckos had a really good showing. Chris and I have been drinking all day, so this will be a fun one tonight. This is also going to be a doubleheader. We are doing a two-parter about our chosen subject. And our chosen subject now... Is the Hellfire Club. Woo! I hope you like weird old dudes doing weird old dude shit. Yep, it, it really is. It's it's a whole bunch of fancy lads behaving badly. It's. I, uh, I, I think that's got to be the title. I, yeah, I think we found our title. Yeah, I, I think that's got to be the title. <laughs> Anytime we can shoehorn Cabin Boy in, you know damn well we're going to do it. Oh, yes. So if you don't know what they were, the Hellfire Clubs were groups of seemingly upstanding members of the nobility and the gentry in Britain and Ireland in the 18th century who came together in secret to throw out all the norms and expectations of society and indulge in gatherings filled with epic bouts of drinking, orgiastic trysts with prostitutes, mockeries of the ceremonies of royalty in the church, and, according to legend, communion with Satan himself. So basically they were liberal arts theater majors. Bingo. Yeah, been there, done that, got that (laughs) t-shirt. So we have two primary sources for this episode today. We have The Hellfire Clubs, Sex, Satanism, and Secret Societies by Evelyn Lord. And we have The Hellfire Clubs, A History of Anti-Morality by Jeffrey Ash. So, gentlemen, shall we just get into it, get straight in? Let's go in. Let's go for it. Let's right. go for it, because this is going to be a two-parter. We want to cram as much as much delicious knowledge into your ears as we mm, possibly can. Tasty. After reading about old white men for... Two weeks, I don't want to hear the word cram anymore. Today's episode is brought to you by the word cram. <laughs> so I want to begin by taking a look at the roots of the Hellfire Clubs and the environment in which they began to develop in the early 18th century. Now, the origins of these groups go back a couple centuries into the Renaissance, where we start to see an emergence in literature and theater of the idea of large groups of people, mostly men and mostly men in what were in positions what are supposed to be high virtue, such as the church, nobility, and government, 
living lives of hedonism and debauchery behind closed doors. You never hear about stuff like that. You never do. You never do. It's like that's a that's just a relic of the past. You never do. Uh, the most famous of these examples is from a pentalogy of novels by a 16th century former French monk named Francois Rabelais called The Life of Gargantua and Pantagruel about a pair of hedonistic, scatologically focused giants, Gargantua and his son Pantagruel. Now, the novels feature the fictional abbey of Telem, uh, which was built by Gargantua, and that is given to Friar Jean, who founds the abbey on the inverse of the usual principles of monastic life. Now, men and women live together. They're all young and beautiful. There's maid service. There's a swimming pool. There's no clocks in sight. And an inscription on the gate warns off those who are unwelcome. Bigots, hypocrites, burners of heretics, lawyers, and judges. They live according to a single rule. Free will above all. Fais ce que tu voudras, which is French for do what you wish. Or, to put it in a way that might sound a little more familiar, do as thou wilt. Now this phrase will reappear later in not only this episode, but in the second episode where we start to talk about some of the derivatives of the Hellfire Club and how it starts to appear in more modern times. Another reason I felt I needed to mention Gargantua and Pantagruel uh, was a passage that I discovered when I was investigating these books. Now, remember when I told you guys last week that I had a special treat for both of you for this mm-hmm. recording? Oh, well, yeah, how could we forget? <laughs> now, before I read you this passage, I'd like to ask you guys a question. What use is a goose? Oh, boy. Oh, boy, it's about to be limerick time. I can kind of ballpark it just based on what I know about the rest of this episode, and it's going to be about some sexing. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> okay, what if I were to tell you it's toilet paper? I'm listening. I, I have two people in this room looking at me like I, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. This better be good too. So uh, I will explain. I have a passage here from the book. Uh, I think it's the second book of the five, and it is worth every minute I spent having to translate it from French. Oh Jesus Christ! <clears throat> I have said Gargantua by a long and curious experience found out a means to wipe my ass. The most lordly, the most excellent, and most convenient that was ever seen. I have wiped my bum with a kerchief, with a pillow, with a pantouf, with a pouch, with a pannier, with a hat. Of hats, note that some were shorn, others shaggy, some velveted, others covered with taffeta, and others covered with satin. The best of all of these is the shaggy hat, for it makes a very neat abstersion of the shite. Afterwards, I wiped my tail with a hen, with a cock, with a pullet, with a calfskin, with a hare, with a pigeon, with a cormorant, with an attorney's bag, with a montero, with a coif, and with a falconer's lure. But to conclude, I say and maintain that of all the torchkuls, arswisps, bum fodders, tail napkins, bumhole cleansers, and white breeches, there is none such in the world that compares to the neck of a goose that is well downed, and if you hold the head betwixt your legs. And believe me therein upon mine honor, for you will thereby feel in your knockhole a most wonderful pleasure, both in regard to the softness of the set down and the temperate heat of the goose. Jesus Christ! <laughs> Geese are mean sons of bitches. I am not putting a goose anywhere That's anywhere a, that close I mean, to my nethers. You never want to reproduce again. This was the reaction I was hoping we get. You need a Christ. special goose who's just going to lay back and take it. The oh two of you God! Are looking at me through all of this, like I've lost my mind. Oh yeah, we still are. 
I know. Well, this was a monk who wrote this. Mm-hmm. So with the emergence of these literary characters came a shift in European society. Now, during the first part of the 16th century, the driving force behind foreign relations and domestic policy was the Protestant Reformation. You have this massive religious divide causing great strife in Europe. And you have people desiring to practice their religion, even at great risk to life and limb. And you see through the, throughout the emergence of the late Renaissance and early modern period, these secret groups are being formed to hide from prying eyes of the authorities and the general public. Now, at first, motivation was completely religious, but soon politics began to tie itself into these practices, specifically in Britain as well, where you had Henry VIII bringing in the Church of England, throwing out the Catholics, you have Bloody Mary, you have Elizabeth I. It becomes a whole mess for centuries and centuries and centuries. And now we're in a time of rigid structure, both in the class system and with morality, especially when it comes to sex and religious practices. And once secret groups have been founded on the basis of counteracting political and religious norms, the dominoes of law and sexual morality are definitely going to follow quickly. Now, the first of these do-as-thou-wilt groups is recorded in 1602, when the fires of contention between Catholic and Protestant were still burning hot in England. There's a mention in the diary of a guy named John Manningham, who was a famous Elizabethan academic and lawyer of, quote, a profane company calling themselves the Damned Crew, men without fear of either hell or heaven, delighting in that title. They were a company of young gallants, they would meet together on nights and vow amongst themselves to kill the next man they met whosoever. So diverse murders were committed, but none was punished. Uh, later analysis of Manningham's diaries would theorize that the leader of the Damned Crew was uh, actually tied to the gunpowder plot, Robert Cates being Guy Fox. Mm-hmm. But that would happen a few years later, and of course we don't have any proof to really back that up. Guy yeah, never stopped this before. Nope. <laughs> uh, the next group of aristocratic Hellraisers shows up in 1623 when a bunch of former soldiers and naval officers who just returned from fighting Spain came together to form a secret club uh, dedicated to the sole aim of, quote, making merry, drinking wine, and taking tobacco. Said to be founded by a Catholic nobleman named Edward Lord Vaux, this group was founded according to a deposition by court officials with the usual club standards of a treasurer who collected 20 pounds of membership dues and a password known only to the members, which according to the the deposition, that password was oatmeal. So they went by several what, names. What's the password? Orgy. <laughs> uh, now, the, this group went by several names, but um, the two that are most featured are the Bugle Boys or the Titchire Twos. Which the is, Bugle Boys at all related to the pants. <laughs> the acid-washed pants. Now, the Titchire Twos, on the other hand, where the name comes from, there are two possibilities. One is from... The poet Virgil's eclogue of the Battle of Philippi, or probably more likely from the common Stuart slang term, tittery wappet. <laughs> which means... Let's just go with that. Uh, it, 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 it means a vulva. Mm. It means... It, or, it, it, to, it, it's, I didn't know that word could have an onomatopoeia, but here we are. <laughs> well, it means, it means a vulva, or to, to as um, oh, here we go. described it, the quote, female pudendum. Ooh. Ugh, nope, I don't like it. Ooh. I don't like it. Because <laughs> first, to be pedantic, not all women have vulvas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> but also, pudenda. Oh, oh I, I don't know. I, I kind of like it. It's not the worst. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't hate it. So, throughout the 16th century, more libertine groups began to appear, including the Knights of the Blue, who were, again, dedicated to womanizing and carousing, and went by nicknames to hide their identities, such as Sir Drunk as a Dog, Lord Drunk as a Rat, King Never Sober, and Lord Never Be Good. 
<laughs> I love that. This is all one word, too. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, in the 1650s, you have the Knights Errant, who appear as a counter to the moral, uh, severe moral strictures of the Puritan government of Oliver Cromwell. Big fan. Uh, they were a crowd of discharged soldiers from the recent English Civil War who dedicated themselves to drunkenness, whoring, gambling, and funding their activities by just mugging people. If you added baseball, it would just be us. Yeah, it really would. <laughs> so there were several gentlemen's clubs who called themselves the Hectors, because uh, both because Hector was a classically inspired term for a swaggerer or braggart. Uh, Hector, of course, being the character from the Iliad. The tamer of horses. Uh, but also, it's a euphemism for an erect penis. Uh, oh, as, as, suggest, as suggested by this piece of verse from the Earl of Rochester. I'm never going to be able to read the Iliad again. <clears throat> There's not a petticoat goes by, but from my codpiece out you fly. Not to be held twixt hand and thigh. I never felt a soft white hand, but Hector like you strutting stand, as if the world you would command. So, if you ever want to know what a 1650s dick joke is like... It's that. There you thought it rhymes. <laughs> It is inverse. They just tried harder back then. So, uh, ten years later, 1660, the English monarchy again regains control of the country with the accession of Charles II, and he puts in place a court of young, rich nobles, most of whom carry a reputation for being hard drinkers, free lovers, and extravagant spenders. Now, it's no surprise that during this period that a new character trope emerges, that of the rake. And we're going to come back to this concept several times throughout this these episodes. Now, a rake becomes kind of a stock character. He's habituated to immoral conduct, uh, particularly womanizing, wasting his usually inherited fortune on gambling, drink, women, and parties, and incurring uh, lavish debts in the process. Now, these rake characters would feature in the literature and theater of the time, at first emerging as sort of a flawed but not unlovable anti-hero, but as the Restoration period progressed and the stories of these of the goings-on of the royal court start to work their way through society... They become the butt of these moralistic tales in which the rake's typical fate was debtor's prison, venereal disease, or lifelong insanity in Bedlam Hospital. All of which the rakes would be completely okay with. Uh, I think it depends. <laughs> I think it depends. I mean... Debtor, well, I haven't seen the burnout. This is also, this is also debtor's prison in the 1660s. Well, that's that's, that's, that's not a pleasant place to be. So the famed courtiers of the time uh, reflected the rise in popularity of the rake character. And Charles Court, which was dubbed the Merry Gang... Contained the men uh, whose, without whose inspiration, the Hellfire Clubs never really would have come into being. You had King Charles himself. Uh, you had George Villiers, Duke of Buckingham, John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester, Sir Charles Sedley, and Sir Charles Sackville, Earl of Dorset. Now, the stories of the debauchery they engaged in behind closed doors are varied and each more scandalous than the next. They're sleeping with each other's wives and mistresses. They're constantly dueling each other, much to the consternation of the king. And they're dueling each other over small or even imagined insults. And they're drinking enough to just drop a regiment in its tracks. And they had recently outlawed dueling in England during mm-hmm. this time period. Cowards. Yeah. Well, then they, re- then they reinstated it in 1688 for the purpose of dueling Catholics, of allowing Protestants to duel Catholics. It's weird. Yeah, that's a whole other story. Now, set up... So, it's their public antics that truly cement them into legend. In 1663, Sedley is imprisoned for a short time for standing naked with some companions on the balcony of the aptly named Cock Tavern in Bow Street <laughs> and inciting a riot by pissing into bottles and throwing them at passers-by on the street. Uh, the Earl of Rochester spent many days walking around London disguised as a one Dr. Alexander Bendo handing out bills advertising miracle cures that he said were to be especially good for the maladies of young women. 
he would set up small portable laboratories in the street where he would attract crowds and inspect the genitals of young women behind curtains before dispensing quack cures and interpreting omens only to disappear into the city before anyone caught on to his fraud. <laughs> Which, it was very easy to disappear into London at this point as well. It was the largest city in Europe. It had a population at this point of almost three-quarters of a million people. It was enormous. Well, said in this time period, one-sixth of the population <clears throat> of the UK had lived there at one point in time. Yeah. Yeah, lived in within like a day's walk of, of the city of London. Now, Sedley and the Earl of Rochester would spirit themselves around the city, getting into brawls and seeking out poets and playwrights in their popular haunts so as to start fights with them <laughs> to be written about in the poems and the plays. <laughs> just, just dropping beatings on nerds. Man, Instagram changed things. It really did. <laughs> One night in 1675... Sedley and the Earl of Dorset took to the balcony of an alehouse in Covent Garden. They stripped nude, and they began to preach the gospel to gathering crowds in the street below. Before switching gears and just starting to roll out the most blasphemous claims they could come up with, and then they began simulating sex with each other. Uh, you also had Thomas Baron Wharton, who one night broke into the newly built St. Paul's Cathedral after bribing the night watchman, and was caught in the morning still blackout drunk. Pissing into the baptismal font. <laughs> Just still drunk. What are, what are you doing? Give me a minute. You fuck off. Give me, give me a minute. Fuck if I stop, off. it's going to burn. <laughs> Can't stop once you start, it stings. <laughs> so by 1680, many of the rakish members of Charles Court were dying out, mostly of liver problems, syphilis, and gangrene brought on by sexually transmitted infections. All of this sounds right. Like, if I had to ballpark it, it would be that. Yeah. You get maybe 15, 20 years of this hard living before it comes It comes collecting its debts. I've been drunk, but I've never been pissing in St. Paul's Cathedral's baptismal font drunk. Yeah, I've never... I've never been so drunk that I've pissed in the baptismal font of a, the largest church in a single country. <laughs> Second largest, maybe, but not the first. Right. <laughs> start in small community churches and work your way. Yeah, up. You gotta yeah, work yeah, your yeah. way up. You can't. You can't gotta start at the big yeah. leagues. <laughs> you gotta walk before you run. So the the Mary Gang kind of dispersed and no longer hung out as a solid unit. But the the courtiers that remained formed a new group. <laughs> I love this because it just. Known as the Ballers Club. <laughs> you can find them on soundcloud.com slash ballers club. It was started by Charles Sedley, and they would meet at the Dog and Partridge in Fleet Street. Their activities on the whole were far more innocent than their predecessors, and the worst thing they could be accused of were holding nude dances with prostitutes at a local brothel, and the one run-in they had with the authorities, and I love this, I love this so much, where um, a box of leather dildos that they were attempting to import from Holland was seized and burned by the customs officers. <laughs> oh no, there's more. They're torching it like it's, it's what they do to heroin and shit. <laughs> so oh, to quote God. a letter from Ballers Club member Henry Saville to the Earl of Rochester, quote, the dildos were burnt without mercy notwithstanding that Sedley and I made two journeys to the city in their defense <laughs> consider this my lord you see what things are done in your absence and then pray consider whether it is fit for you to be blowing on coals in the country when there is revenge to be done for the ashes of these martyrs gentlemen you have burned an innocent dildo <laughs> Yeah, they they say secret societies, but these guys were 
out and about and mm-hmm. very public about this. We haven't got too secret yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, haven't, they haven't been forced underground. <laughs> so when they say they argued in front of the magistrate or whoever for the defense of these you know, you know what? Those, they when someone, probably actually although, did. Although you know what is underground. Is the ashes of these dildos because you know they held a burial ceremony. God rest those those sweet sweet dilds. <laughs> pour one out if you're drinking something right now. Pour a small amount of your beverage on the ground for those sweet sweet those dilds. Those poor lost leather dildos. So, however, 1688 comes around and the House of Stuart is deposed from the English throne. The Houses of Orange and Hanover then take over the monarchy, and a new resurgence in morality laws come into play. Um, societies for temperance and public virtue are formed, and all of the old uh, high society rakes fall from power and influence. The next 30 or so years are fairly quiet, relatively speaking, when it comes to the activities of these libertine clubs, with a few exceptions. In 1709, a hack journalist named Ned Ward publishes a book called The Secret History of Clubs, and it came about at the exact right time. Now, clubs are becoming a major part of upper and upper middle class British society. A club can be found for any type of interest, from philosophy to gardening. It can cater to all tastes. They were a refuge from the rigors of life outside. They ran in parallel with the new spirit of debate, discussion, and learning that the Enlightenment brought on. Now, most clubs were meant for men, but some clubs for women did exist. And a few were even co-ed, although these tended to be like academically focused, lecture clubs, things like that. Ward's book talked about fanciful clubs, such as the No-Nose Club, a club for men who had all lost their noses to the necrosis brought on by syphilis. Um... I also realize I've mentioned syphilis. I think maybe forty times since the beginning of this episode. Oh, and it's we, we're just getting good. That's Restoration right. England for you. Uh, and they met to dine on pigs' heads with the snouts removed. <laughs> Pour one out for their homies. They probably still have their noses. They just use those dilds. We also <laughs> we also had the farting club. Who came in, which is a creative name, I know. I, 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 I'm guessing this isn't one of like the literary ones. This isn't like the book club or anything? No. Okay. Uh, they came together in public places to drive people mad with the smell of their gas, having, quote, tuned their arses with ale and juniper water. <laughs> Are we sure this club is not still active? It could, it could very well be. We have a three-member meeting right now. Right? <laughs> Let's get some juniper. I didn't know that that worked that way. I had no idea. Well, the question is, by juniper water, are they referring to gin? I would assume. Ale, I, yes. I don't know, because the major part of, like, so that sweetness is Dutch like, courage. infusing water with certain herbs and stuff like that. So it could actually just be juniper water. Does gin give you gas? Because as a man with diseased intestinal tract, like, I, don't, I, I, I honestly don't know what a normal person responds to things with. <laughs> Here's the thing. Every time I've been drunk on gin, gin is not the only factor that would have come into play. Yeah. Yeah, so gin's, gin's I, a whole kind of thing. I have not been able to conduct a double-blind test. Our next, really our next like, Dutch-heavy episode, we're drinking gin. Oh, oh Christ. Yeah. Dutch courage. Oh, yeah. All right, so we also had the Broken Shopkeepers Club, who came together at Tumble Down Dick's Tavern to curse their creditors and, quote, drink confusion to the bailiffs. And then just fart all over the joint. Just, just fart up old Tumble Dick's. Terrence and Philip of the 1690s. Uh, all of these were clearly products of Ward's fertile imagination, but the book does mention real clubs like the Mollies, where cross-dressers could socialize openly in their preferred garb, and the Yorkshire Club of Northern Tykes, whose sole aim was to meet in Smithfield in London on market day to walk around and to be as absolutely as northern as possible despite the cockneys around them. 
Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was really rubbing their faces. All right. You know, you don't like the way I'm talking, eh? Would you like to fight? So the other major flare-up of secret groups and scofflaws coming together came in about March of 1712 when gangs of disguised young gentlemen began randomly attacking and beating people in the street, smashing windows, pulling on doorbells, and assaulting the servants that came to answer and attacking constables and watchmen. Yet a series of, after a series of dozens of attacks and days of sensational and false reports of horrendous tortures by the press who named these young men the Mohawks, after four Iroquois chiefs who visited London the previous year, which was, I feel the need to point out, a completely unconnected event. <laughs> Some arrests were made, and whether or not the young members of the gentry who had, were arrested were actually connected to the attacks, uh, you end up with the so-called Mohawk scare petering out within the month, but again you have these groups of young men coming together with the purpose of raising hell. By 1719, however... These clubs of rakes and rascals are starting to reemerge into the public consciousness, and it's brought about by a man named Philip, Duke of Wharton. Now, 1719, we have a Britain that is in the full throes of the height of the Age of Enlightenment. Things are going well. Britain is now a serious world power. It's become the trade powerhouse of Europe, and after a long series of wars, it's now at peace. London is Europe's largest city, as I mentioned, three-quarters of a million people in its population. The merchant class is exploding. New money has injected itself into an economy that's booming, and you have a new spirit of learning, curiosity, creativity, and a modern thought that has taken over the zeitgeist. If you're not familiar with the Enlightenment, it's a period from kind of the late 17th century through the late 18th century when most people see the beginnings of our modern world beginning to take shape. You have major advancements in science, philosophy, uh, modern politics, and art. You have thinkers like Voltaire, Adam Smith, David Hume, John Locke, writers like Jonathan Swift, Samuel Johnson, Edward Gibbon, Baruch Spinoza, Denis Diderot, uh, scientists like Isaac Newton, Rene Descartes, James Watt, Edmund Halley. You have composers, artists, uh, Handel, Haydn, William Hogarth, all of them playing a role in the emergence of our modern world. You have ideas like the scientific method, secularism, classical liberalism, constitutional democracy, individual liberty. You have the neoclassical movement in art and architecture. They all start to come into their own during this period. <clears throat> but... While you have all these new schools of thought and these new societal influences that are taking Europe and especially Britain by storm, the upper class and the nobility have always been the most small-c, conservative facet of society. And these two forces are starting to butt up against each other. And what they would create would go down in history as, some, as what people would say was some of the wickedest groups to ever exist. <clears throat> 1719 was the year that saw the emergence of what was the first actual named Hellfire Club. Uh, of course... None of these clubs that we mention ever called themselves the Hellfire Club. It's a shame. It's a shame. It's a fantastic name. It really is. Yeah, it's a, it's a name that was assigned to them after the fact. So we have Philip, Duke of Wharton, walking onto the scene. He's a secret Jacobite Catholic. By the age of 21, he's already earned a reputation as a licentious womanizer, drinker, gambler. And it was during 1719 and the two years that followed that Wharton began to gather to his bosom a group of like-minded men about whose meetings far more speculation exists than actual facts. What is almost certain is that they gathered together in secret, either at taverns or at Wharton's riding club, or maybe the homes of other members, to feast, drink, uh, engage in relatively harmless minor, bla minor blasphemies, such as toasting the devil, where the speculation really begins... How is that a minor blasphemy? <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to actually... <laughs> Okay, blasphemy, if it's a, a crime as it was in this society, it's a victimless crime. When I say minor blasphemy, I mean just... 
Just a I mean, quick hail I mean, or two. I mean, from our standpoint, Correct. it's you know hoisting hoisting your your beer and saying hey to the devil. It means nothing. So it probably means the world yeah. to him, though. Well, yeah, it's just it's, it's just a nice way of appreciating it. So where the speculation starts to begin is when a report comes out in February 1720 in Mist's Weekly Journal describing two clubs. The first is the Bold Bucks, whose mission is to attempt sex with all females of the human species, no matter their age or relation to themselves. Yikes. <laughs> the second, Yikes. The second is the Hellfires, and this is the first ever mention of the Hellfire Club, who were aimed at, quote, a more transcendent malignity, deriding the forms of religion as a trifle. Miss claimed they ate dishes such as Holy Ghost Pie, the Breasts of Venus, and Devil's Loin, and drank Hellfire Punch. What exactly went into Hellfire Punch, we don't know. Just, it's nice that they were drinking like riot juice and <laughs> riot punch, jungle juice, all that. It was Pretty just much. it was just a frat party, and I'm here for it. For loco, nice. He, he claimed that the members were quote wealthy men and educated for whom obsceneness, curses, blasphemies, and exclamations are the order of the day. They play at cards and dice on a Sunday. My God, major blasphemy. <laughs> Ladies shield their faces because of the whiff of brimstone when they pass. Brimstone, by the way, smells like rotten eggs, so I don't think it was actually brimstone that they were catching. They were an offshoot of the old fart club. (laughs) (laughs) So a second report soon comes out claiming that the group has 40 members, 15 of whom were ladies of quality. In the meetings, they ridiculed the Holy Trinity. They took the names of the prophets and the patriarchs from the Bible, and when one of their number died, they became the club's official ambassador to hell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's one of my favorite parts of this whole thing <laughs> I love that so much they would dress as various biblical characters figures from classical mythology and animals a single page broadsheet published the names of suspected members and their supposed super case including the king of hell the doorkeeper of hell Elijah the prophet the old dragon lady Sodom lady Gomorrah and lady fornicator <laughs> Pretty on the nose there. Yeah, a little bit. That's yeah. That's it's kind of hard. It's not subtle at all. You know, Elijah the prophet and the old dragon has some subtlety to it. Lady fornicator, you know what's up. It's right on the nose. They just she showed up late when they were giving out nicknames. <laughs> uh, one aspect of the Hellfire's Club lore that appears to be missing is the actual sexual component. Um, no mention is made of any sort of group sex, orgies, hiring of prostitutes, homosexual activity. Um, which would be a major feature of stories about the later clubs. And this first club didn't last long at all. By 1722, Wharton had run up considerable debts after several failed trade ventures, and his part in the club ceased that year, and he turned to a new interest, the Freemasons. And he was elected Grand Master of British Freemasons in 1723. And this is a tidbit of information that fuels an awful lot of conspiracy theories that pop up on some of the webs- uh, some, some very interesting websites that we're going to talk about in the next episode. Um, in the sort of pieces that take about six to eight paragraphs to get to the word Zionist, which is the point where I check out. <laughs> and it's almost certain that this first Hellfire Club dissolved soon after that. And uh, this first iteration didn't seem to be all that serious. It seems like it was almost meant to be a joke, meant to shock the outside world or some form of long, like long-form satirical performance art. Now, about another decade passes without any men- major mention of clubs like this. But then... It pops up again. Not in England this time, but in Ireland. Now, English peerages often included Irish titles and estates. 
So the same rakish figures that were haunting the morals of London could be found in places like Dublin and Waterford. Now, the stories of the Irish Hellfire Club seem to be based more on speculation than on true fact again, but it was supposedly founded in 1735 by, Earl Pars- by Richard Parsons, Earl of Ross, who possessed an obscene, uh, an obscene wit and an eccentric habit of receiving visitors whilst completely nude. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Hello. Come in. I've been waiting for you. Uh, the club made its home at a hunting lodge on Montpelier Hill outside Dublin, which has been made from the stones of a 5,000-year-old Neolithic burial, uh, burial tomb. That's so good. An act of which some claim to have opened up a portal to a dark world of spirits and ancestors. Apparently, it's a massive tomb. Mm-hmm. They've been doing more recent excavations. Yeah, apparently it was about the size tremendous. of yeah, it's about the size of like Newgrange up, up in the uh, Boyne Valley. And the ruins of this lodge still stand today and are said to be haunted by dark demonic forces. But again, we'll talk about that later. Sweet. Uh, it was the Irish Hellfire Club that was said to be the first to indulge in truly satanic rituals and the making of pacts with the devil himself. According to stories, the club members met at the lodge to drink Southine, a cocktail of hot whiskey and melted butter, in front of a roaring fire. One chair was always said to be left vacant for the devil, and their mascot was a fierce, large black cat, who was always served first at dinner, as the cat was the oldest being in the room. It was said that uh, one night a dark-cloaked stranger came to the club during a storm, joined the members in a game of cards. When one man dropped his card on the floor, he looked under the table in horror to see that the dark stranger had cloven hooves and the devil, having been discovered, escaped through a hole in the roof that still exists to this day. Other stories tell of gay orgies, uh, the raping of children, but there's no evidence to support any of these claims. Much like the first club, the Irish Hellfire Club was probably no more than a drinking club of made up of rich society men who talked a lot of shit Occasionally toasted the devil to seem like a bunch of edge lords, and who met at the lodge simply to get away from their responsibilities for a while, or to be alone with their mistresses, or to, you know, to have a tryst with a prostitute away from the prying eyes of the public, or a brothel. Walk around, fart up the joint, whatever. You're going to be talking about the farting club until I'm the very end. Of the next farting episode. club. I just think it's great. <laughs> now, soon though, would come the iteration of the Hellfire Club that is most remembered today. But that's going to have to wait because we're going to talk about it in part two of the Hellfire the Thrilling conclusion. So what do you think, guys? I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. I like it. I like the farting on people thing. <laughs> I've, I've made no secret of that one. Um, Any stories you heard in your research you'd like to tell us about? You know what? Like most of my research... I'm sorry. I'm, I'm starting to lose my voice from the baseball game today. And my, uh-huh. uh, my cough drops aren't exactly helping. So you guys are going to have to do the heavy lifting. Um... There's a lot of the the one thing I found is that it, it focuses mostly on the Irish one with the tomb, and it's these weird ass like ghost hunters, mm-hmm. and they start out like, and sometimes they just kind of hit you with it, like they're telling the stories, and like, I found a lot of fairly useful information, and it's like, now let's go find us some motherfucking ghosts, <laughs> and they just sit yeah. there and then just don't find ghosts. No, so it was spoiler alert, like a Halloween <sighs> special there, the Ghost Bros. Oh God. <laughs> Oh, no. Zach Bagans walking around trying to fight shit that isn't there. My that favorite story right. with the Irish group was uh, apparently a, a local priest mm-hmm. came to to uh, ex, you know to see what was going on up here and comes in in the middle of a I guess a black mass and they're you know sacrificing something to this, this black cat 
So the priest goes up and tries to exercise the cat. So he picks up and starts shaking his <laughs> giant black cat. It was supposedly the cat was like the size of a, of a like a of, of Jack. Yeah. Was, and, was, and to prove his demonic nature is you know his the, the, the facial scars he has from his cat. Pick up and shake a cat. Any cat. <laughs> Any cat. Just pick him up and shake him. <laughs> yeah, Kitty's going to be pissed. Maybe that guy, dude, it got lit up by that lion that he choked out. That, that jogger. Be <laughs> <laughs> like that, dude. That was the thing that kind of pissed me off because, like, afterwards it came out like, like, okay, first of all, dude, straight up strangled a lion to death. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it was it was a small one. And like, okay, okay, fine. Like, it's twenty four pounds. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. okay, you go fuck with a twenty four pound cat. Let's go ahead. Oh, it was a twenty four pound mountain lion. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's twenty twenty four pounds a lion. Every single part of that animal is sharp. And it's it's six pound calico draws blood on a daily basis. Yeah, go ahead. It's twenty four pounds. It's twenty four pounds of blades and rage. Yeah, we'll we'll throw you in a phone booth with a twenty four pound cat, and we'll see you just walk out fine. Yeah. Did you see his face? <laughs> <laughs> he looked like he tried to make out with an airplane propeller. <laughs> <laughs> he, he looked terrible. So yeah, it makes sense. Um, so yeah, we'll uh, again we're doing a double header today. Yeah, so. and today uh, is it should be noted. In the uh, vein of weird internet made up holidays, it's National Beer Day, guys. It's National Beer Day. Oh. It's National Beer Day. Beer Raise up. them. Put them up. All right. Cheers. Cheers. If you still have any left that you poured out for all those dilds, you can finish it now. I'm just excited about the imported <laughs> box of fine morning. dildos. It's a morning over a box of leather dildos. I mean, they, went to, I love the, I they went to bat over it. There was a trial. It was like to kill a mockingbird for butt plugs. <laughs> <laughs> Stop talking about the dildos. Also, help me. I will hit you with my ring hand. If you, if you want to see courage, it's not a man with a dildo in his hand. <laughs> By the way, I love that both authors in both of these sources felt the need to note that the dildos have been imported from Holland. I, was there like a? Is there like a dildo trade? I, I gotta I got got know about the dilds. I guess there must have been, you know. I'm just I, trying to meet in secret with a dildo dealer in Rotterdam. Just <laughs> <laughs> would that be the butt plug plug? <laughs> Good bump, Jesus. All right. Was that the low point for like the entirety of the podcast? Oh, we were, Is that doing, it? we were doing so well. We were doing, we weren't doing so that well. well. We weren't doing that well. I mean, no, we, it's been a long time. I've been talking about the fart guys the whole time. <laughs> I like the fart guys the most. And by the way, I have to feel, since we're talking about the farting club, of course, Jack, our canine outreach specialist, is sitting, is lying on the floor. He typically does his part. At, and uh, he's been farting this whole show. Yeah, he does He does his fair <laughs> share. For a few minutes, there's been a waft of something. I'm atrocious. just glad I, he's laying under the table, but I have the head end. Yeah, I've got the other end on my side, yeah. and it's not pleasant. He's a I dog. He's a lot of protein. All this weekend with a black cat doing the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, of course, um, yeah, thanks to Jack for just being there, and of course... <laughs> Ripping farts while we're talking about a farting club. At least you're being topical. Thank you. Uh, thanks, of course, always to the Bloody Seaman, uh, Pittsburgh's premier purveyors of pirate punk, for our uh, for letting us use their music on our episodes. Uh, special thanks to our newest Patreon subscriber, Jeff Malloy. What's up, Jeff? Thank you for your support. Thank you for that sweet, sweet loot, Jeff. Appreciate you, buddy. <laughs> uh, you're a good friend. You are a loyal listener. We, uh, I appreciate the feedback I've gotten from you, and uh, we hope this episode finds you well. 
Oh man, I love that this is the one we dedicated to you, big guy. <laughs> hey, yeah, don't listen to this one at work. <laughs> it's a little late for that now. I didn't exactly give a disclaimer. Yeah. Um, Sorry about losing your job, Jeff. <laughs> and of course, speaking. And of course, speaking of uh, Patreon, if you'd like to support what we do, if you think what we do is worthy of a couple bucks a month, you can go to patreon.com slash... Okay. <laughs> All right. We got a button for that, you know. <laughs> it's, honestly, it came out before I could even... Oh, it did. There was genuine shock and surprise in that one. <laughs> we still got to do another <laughs> one. We're falling apart. Yeah, patreon.com slash trrpod. To uh, to support us, uh, you can also find us on social media. You can find me, Rob, at uh, Meatneck on Instagram and at Meatneck Two on Twitter. Chris, you can follow me at Nightlife Commando uh, on Instagram. I don't know why you would want to do that, but if you do, then go ahead, fire a request off. Uh, you can follow us on all the major platforms of social media supporting the podcast. We have at Podcast TRR on Twitter because some asshole has at TRR Pod. And has never made a post. Never made a post. Uh, like, go ahead and send him a message. Trying to hunt him down, throw a beating on him. Yeah, just, just fire a beating on that guy. Uh, you can find us on YouTube and uh, Facebook at um, These Rogues and Renegades. Yeah, cool. Uh, Kyle? Uh, you can check the Twitter account that I never update at Kyle Graper. I don't even think I follow you. Yeah. What the hell? I'll, I'll, do, it. I'll do it. I'll we're do it. We're gonna have to fix that. While you're chained to the while you're chained up in the basement next time, we'll we'll take the time to <laughs> it's the least we can do. Um, of course, baseball season's back, so you can follow all of our uh, pirate goings on on uh, with the Renegades of the Rotunda. At, at PGH uh, Renegades on PGH Twitter. Renegades on Twitter. And at Renegades the Rotunda on Instagram and also Facebook. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, cool. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I, I didn't enjoy it all that much. And um, the next episode is going to be just as weird. Uh, because if, if there are weird stories coming out of the roots of the Hellfire Club, once we start working the internet into it, it's going to get a whole lot weirder. So, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Uh, go Bucks. Good job on the sweep. Sorry for the burp. Um, <laughs> go out and form your own farting club if you like. And until you hear from us next time, boys, what do we do? We hold fast. We hold fast. Take deep.